Hello and welcome to episode two of the Nimbus podcast, live from the kitchen here at Nimbus Records. This episode looks at the releases from February 2018, all of which will be linked in the description below. If you wish to keep up to date with Nimbus Records releases, please subscribe to our mailing list by visiting our website. This week's guest was the highly talented pianist Martin Jones, a long-time contributor to Nimbus. This episode also features a first appearance by the label's dog, Jason, causing some ruckus in the kitchen. Like and subscribe to whatever channel you're listening on and leave us a review on iTunes if you're listening there, as it helps other people find us. A Spotify playlist is linked below of all the songs in the episode in their entirety. It only remains to say we hope you enjoy episode two of the Nimbus podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself? Well, my name is Martin Jones and I'm a pianist and I've been working up here at Nimbus Records. We've been making recordings of solo, duet and two piano music of Alan Richardson. So we've just finished and now we're going to have a chat. We are, yes. <laughs> has, has it been a good day, do you think? Um, the music's fun to play, but... It's awkward. Playing duets is always physically awkward on the piano. It's one keyboard and two bodies don't go terribly well together. It's all, There's always places where one of the pianists wishes the other pianist wasn't there. Um, you know, it's the bit in the middle, the bottom right hand and the top's left hand yeah. are always crashing into each other. Um, it's a bit like playing doubles tennis when yeah, the ball I lands is right in between. It's sort of slightly unnatural, but it is fun when it comes together. Uh, you find yourself hearing one piano doing things that you know you can't possibly do on your own. And so it sounds great then. Yeah. Is it easier when, because obviously you and Adrian have known each other for quite some time is it easier at least when you know each other well oh yes it's it's better if you know each other you can say things that you might not say to other people <laughs> like get out of the way <laughs> get get your finger off that note yes. i need it yeah. <laughs> yeah. and it's composers it doesn't matter who they are they seem to always do it don't they this yes. always overlap yes yes there's there I, I suppose there's no way of avoiding it there will always be those one or two notes in the middle of the keyboard that get used the most. And there's only a fraction of a second for one player to get their finger away from the note yeah. before the other person needs it to play a chord or something. Or, or, or the bottom half has a, a long note at the top, which they hold on, and the other one has been given short repetitions of that exactly same, exact same note. And of course, in theory, it's fine because you can let go of the note. But if you're doing it properly and you're hanging on, the other person is just bashing you on everything. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's putting a rather black picture. since quite a lot of the music we've been recording still only exists in manuscript it was never published um, either during Alan Richardson's life and, and not after his death and it's lain um, in 
primarily in the in the library at the Royal Academy of Music in London. And Martin was able to ferret it out over the last couple of years. Um, so not been heard. We we think some of it, in fact, never never played even. Um, and if things go well and we are able to complete the project, then we'll publish some of this music. And also, the music's not all terribly serious classical music. Like today, we were doing a, um, a, th a piece on the nursery rhyme. So, you know, it's... And he had a fine sense of humour. There was another two-piano piece of, on a list waltz. And he manages to weave a couple of Chopin waltzes in there as well that you, you sort of think... Now, where did that come from? You, I know that piece, you know, and then you realise your partner is playing something totally different. And so it, there's been lots to smile at as well as lots to concentrate very hard at. There yeah, have. I, I mean, there were the nursery rhyme piece as well that we were playing right, earlier. Yeah, it was yeah. fun spotting little tunes out, it, of, uh, yeah. Yeah. out of that sort of yeah. melange of different yeah. melodies, yeah. which is really great. Martin is being attacked by the house dog, Jason. <laughs> Do you know, this is the first... The fourth I've been guest. here for three days, and now suddenly... <laughs> You're the best friend. to discuss the February releases, um, starting with the pieces of uh, Jacques Boivin, uh, Suites from the Premier, Premier Livre d'Org <laughs> on Organ of Saint-Michel Bolbec. Well done. Thank there you. you. <laughs> 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 I had to get my mouth around that one. Yeah, quite a mouthful. Well, this is a part of a series of recordings that we've been making with the organist and author, uh, David Ponsford. Uh, it may well, in fact, be the final part of this series, which has been entirely focused on French composers and organs, ideally both of the locale and the age of the com composers. And France is a very wonderful place to try and pull that off because for various reasons they have a large number of organs which have never been modified since they were built and they're still in the same places where they were installed and so you can go and find organs which are entirely appropriate for 17th century and it sounds brilliant music I, I loved it I think this is a terrific record I, uh, because uh, you know we're so used to everything being so precise and intonation and all the rest of it and here you get an instrument that's been sitting there for Lord knows how long. 250 years, and yeah. And the rank of pipes, it'll, first ten notes will be fine, and the next one will wheeze or 
be slightly out of tune and you think well that's fine this is exactly what it sounded like then you know it's brilliant yep it is it is absolutely and the, and the quality of the of the reed instruments and things like that is sort of crude by modern electronic massive organ that you see the, today but it must have been something else in those days to have a machine like that. that could do the that. very imperfections of these 17th century organs is what makes them oh, makes enormously it, attractive. That's brilliant. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. yeah, A very human quality. Yeah. yeah. And it's wonderful how the music fits into that almost. It's very loose rhythmically sometimes. The semiquavers aren't no. exactly perfectly aligned. It's all sort of... It feels very natural, is the main thing. I, I did find there was rather a lot of slow pieces. He, he seems to get, he mm. likes his graph well, rather think, a lot, doesn't he? I think the part of the reason for that is he, Boivin, occupies this period in time when organists were just beginning to loosen their corsets from being entirely there to support the service and being free to show off a bit yeah. Um, yeah. and it, it's it's in this fascinating crossover period you can feel that he's still somewhat constrained by the idea that he's there to support the service but actually there are one or two moments where he really thinks oh to hell with this I, I'm gonna just have some fun yeah there. so this is a chromatic fugue exactly. and things like that it's, <laughs> it's really nice as you say he's he's doing one on the sly there and probably playing it as people are leaving so that they can't get it in my book. Probably explains the short length of the pieces as well. Indeed, yeah. all of that, yeah. yeah. But they were published in his lifetime. You know, they were circulated. A lot of this music had uh, a wide circulation, both inside France and outside in Europe. Um, it's just us in the 20th century that have forgotten. Um, they were well enough known in their own time. Yeah, it was one of... Put down track number eight that I really enjoyed. One with these, a reed instrument doing a middle part, with this slightly odd intonation, <laughs> but it sounds absolutely charming. You just think that is lovely. You know, just three minutes or so of music that's of a long gone world that's uh, yes brought yes. brought right to your face. It's absolutely brilliant. The sound too, the the atmosphere of the building, everything. <laughs> Small towns in France to find these organs. Um, 
I can't remember now whether it was in Bolbeck, but it might well, well have been, where the, the mayoral office not only uh, allowed him to have access to the building so he could make the recordings, but closed the roads oh, around really? the building so there wouldn't be any noise. Um, I think they provided the tuners and technicians to look after the organ at no cost. You know, a, a kind of a wonderfully supportive community. Yeah, and so I'm proud of that instrument. Absolutely. How lovely that they're keeping it and that it means that much to them, that yep. they'll do that. Yep. Yep. The other thing that surprised me was the picture of him sitting at the organ, or the, or the organ itself, that the keyboards are quite small and the music is almost like an upright piano. It's right right in front of you. Well, in fact, David said it was so, the, the, the organ loft itself was so cramped that, that literally your back is against the wall. Yeah. And, and to, to play the organ in front of you, it's very And with all those keyboards, it, yeah. you know, it's... <laughs> <laughs> quite a feat but very very neat playing isn't it it's really nicely done oh he knows his stuff oh yes yeah. he really knows yeah. his stuff yes he does but most enjoyable I'm glad you enjoyed it oh I did I mean that's not the sort of record I would buy I have to say um, so when someone says have a listen to it I mean I bought I have organ records but they tend to be the humdingers you know um, mm. uh, Notre Dame and all that sort of thing where mm-hmm. yeah like the F1 of so when you come across something like this which is the real genuine article you think oh yes I must really give this a bit more time look into it there was something that came up uh, when I was reading about the record and listening to the songs which is uh, improvisation being built into a piece of music which I thought was very interesting. Well, I'm sure they did. And when it, well, it's a great tradition with organists, isn't it? Especially in France, mm-hmm. they're particularly good at it, mm-hmm. of um, making up whole symphonies sometimes just out of a fragment. Oh yeah, they're brilliant at it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're really the masters of all that. Uh, and I can tell from bitter experience, not this particular organ, but I used to study the organ. And... Uh, I'd go for a lesson and get some Bach trio sonata up to reasonable standards, struggle like fury to be able to play it. And uh, my teacher said, right, well, next week, uh, your lesson won't be here, which was in the Institute for the Blind in Portland Street, where there's a big organ. So we'll go to St. Mary Le Beau in somewhere in the East End or somewhere in, in London. So see you there next week. So, oh, fine. You turn up next week to this church, and there's this organ up in the loft. And he said, right, now you've got that Bach trio sonata. I said, yeah, all ready to go. I've done another week's practice, so I think I'm okay. He said, right, well, now that manual plays these pipes here. That manual plays those pipes down there. And that manual plays those pipes over there. <laughs> okay, off you go. <laughs> and you find none of it's synchronised. You have to do it. So if you just play a chord, it goes, uh-uh, uh-uh, oh, like yeah. And that's the sort of thing these people were coping with as well. I mean, it wasn't just the actual learning of the notes. It was coping with the machine. And did you notice the stops all the way down the side? I mean, he must have had arms five feet long to reach. How did you... I suppose he must have had a help. Or an assistant. An assistant must have been, because you couldn't possibly play and pull those stops. They were...
next we are discussing um, a tribute to Prokofiev, recorded by Vladimir Veltsman. Yeah. yeah, very interesting sort of overall view of Prokofiev's different styles, really. Mm. That's what he was after. We have a series of records, all called Tribute To. The idea that uh, Vladimir Feltzman has is that you, he would like you to listen to this as an entire program hmm. from beginning to end, and it's been constructed that way, so that it 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 does very often they do go chronologically, um, although not 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 particularly important. But I think what he wanted to do here was to avoid some of the big pieces which are so popular now, the big sonatas and so on, and say well. What, what else is there in Prokofiev's repertoire that sheds some light on his different composing styles? There's the ballet music style. There's the enfant terrible style with the sarcasms. Absolutely. Um, there's the visionary. Because yeah, he wrote Prokofiev. so much music for the piano. He did, well, and, and brilliantly. I mean, one, oh, of the, uh, one of the great... And he could play it too. Yeah. And that's what we have here with this record. Um, from very, very simple preludes, um, you know, through the, the the anger and and dynamism of the sarcasms and on into the music for children. Yeah, it was interesting reading about um, Prokofiev's uh, changing relationship with the piano as sort of, it seemed as if he started out as predominantly a uh, pianist, a performer composer, I oh, think absolutely. it mentioned in the yeah. notes, um, and sort of developed into other styles as it came along. But it's, he kept on coming back to the piano and piano pieces throughout, All his, uh, life. throughout his career. All his life. Yeah. 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 
not not uncommon for composers in the 20th century who were spectacular performers and many of them pianists um, the pianist not only was a major part of their record uh, performance life but also a major part of their compositional life the two things and also were making a living I mean they, yes, they got exactly. paid to play in concerts and they could promote their own music so you know there were all sorts of different aspects as to why they keep it up if they could I suppose Ratmanov be the most famous example of somebody who yes sort of and the sad, he, and the saddest example really because it, yeah. in the end he had to play the piano yeah to earn money and then he had to and then he stopped writing when he was playing so much he only wrote a bit more than a dozen pieces from the time when he left Soviet Russia and not Soviet Imperial Russia yeah. um, in 1914 1919 until he died mm. um, there was virtually a cessation of all compositional yeah. activity and he just devoted to playing the piano but then people like some people in a way handled it better like Granger managed to play all his life and keep writing not so much for piano always but he kept composing. So, it, it, well, it obviously depends. So Ratmanov was in such demand as a player that uh, it would have been very difficult for it to... He was not a composer that wrote easily. It was a hmm. rather long and torturous business and something he keep fiddling with it and changing it. So... I think <coughs> Prokofiev was more... Was Prokofiev more would just write it, yeah. like Shostakovich. just drop out of his head onto the page and that was it. And of course, this is this is home territory for for somebody like Vladimir Felsman, Russian, Russian playing Russian. It's uh, yeah. I must say, I was quite surprised with it that it was so um, the slow pieces were so hands apart. Ah yes. Mm -hmm. You know the first piece, Remembrance. Mm -hmm. There's hardly a place where it isn't. And I thought, well, no, is that. Feltzman wishing he was in Russia, thinking, oh, God, I'd love to be in Moscow. <laughs> sort of, um, looking back, or is that really how they play that stuff? Oh, I don't know. I don't think um, there's any attempt to uh, Not copy, a historical, copy no. historic style. No, no that, that wouldn't be his, no, be no, I, no, his no. way. No, I think it's um, coloristic. I think it's it's a way of breaking chords sometimes in, in order to get a particular colour which you get by not playing all the notes at the same time mm. or in, in, in probably in the case of the Prokofiev um, an effort to identify individual vocal lines in the music. Who am I to tell a Russian playing Russian music? I don't. <laughs> well, I certainly wouldn't. <laughs> no, I wouldn't, and I'm glad I'm a long way away, otherwise he'd be after me. You
Um, so let's move on to the next selection, um, okay. which is, yes, Martin Scherber. Yeah. yeah well, really. it's somebody's music that I'd never heard of. Well, I'd never heard of him, let alone his music. Mm -hmm. It's uh, another unknown. Uh, no, this is where, this is what the recording industry is now having so much fun with. And brilliant, isn't yeah, it? It's, it's fantastic. fantastic. We, yeah. we, we, we don't need any more standard repertoire. No, we mm. don't. And, and so, uh, and it seems that performers and record company um, owners have now realised that in fact there is nothing to be gained. Uh, performers understand that they'll play standard repertoire in public. Um, but shouldn't really be chasing to record it. And record companies now understand that there is absolutely no profit at all to be made in, in selling more Rachmaninoff and Beethoven symphonies. But, that's right. And not only that, if you put a Sherber symphony in a concert programme, who would come? Yeah. yeah you know, right. uh, yeah. so it's down to companies like this to produce this music and let us hear it and then we can decide yeah and maybe one day the piece will turn up in a program who's to know and do you think also that it's in i i think it's important i want to know if you do that we are given the opportunity as listeners to understand what the second 11 musicians were doing it's only when you understand who the contemporaries were around Brahms or Wagner or Mahler that you you fully appreciate the greatness. It's filling in all these mm. gaps, isn't it? Because there are big gaps from, as you say, from Haydn to Mozart to Beethoven to... Yeah. We've got all the big names all lined up and we know every single note virtually of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it, that, I think it's a good thing. It busts the myths that there were great single men of this sort of period, because it was predominantly men, who dominated the entire musical scene and that everything else is just not worth our attention. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, the big ones were the big ones. Mm. Um, but the lesser ones weren't as lesser as it's been thought of in the past. I think a lot of them were a hell of a lot better than, yeah. you know, B class. They would... Yeah. They a were, minus, you know, they were just, <laughs> yeah. and some of them just unlucky being at the same time as the big one. Mm, yeah. I mean, we did some recordings of a French composer, Roger Ducasse, who happened to live at the same time as Ravel and Debussy. Well, what chance do you stand as a French composer with those two knocking around? I mean, it, mm. it made it virtually impossible to get a look in. Mm. If he'd have been on his own somewhere else, We'd probably all know his music, mm. and uh, so it's, there are lots of reasons why we should hear all this stuff. Mm. Yes, and Sherba um, yeah. is 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 one of them. And yeah. There are there are so many, um, and we're 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 going to hear a lot more of names that we don't recognise, and be surprised by not only how beautiful the music is, but in many cases how adventurous it is how forward-looking, mm. and sometimes you even find yourself thinking, well, that has been stolen from a more famous composer, and then you look at the dates and you find that in it's fact... It's the other way around. It's the other way around. Wow. Absolutely. And that happens quite often, that wow. in fact the famous composer is the one who's pinched something. And, and probably made a better job of it, but yes. still started yes. off. Yes. Well, look at all Puccini's operas. Lots of those stories were all already on the go by somebody else. 
but he just happened to do it better. You know. Well, when we were recording several years ago um, with you, all of the Cherny piano sonatas. Now here is a man who is universally acknowledged to have been well under Beethoven's shadow. And unfortunately, a reputation for being a hack composer who wrote hundreds and hundreds of small pieces, um, which young pianists are obliged to learn at some point in their careers and, and therefore universally hated ever after. <laughs> and these 12, 13 sonatas um, mm. that you recorded, we, we found here is a huge, huge piece, a five movement piece. Yeah, it could be 40 minutes long. 40 though. minutes long <clears throat> with a huge fugal ending. <clears throat> And your immediate thought is, well, he's just copying Beethoven. He's copying one of those last three Beethoven sonatas. And then you look at the dates and you find that, in fact, Czerny wrote his first. And perhaps this, the idea of this arrangement of a big sonata with big movements ending in a huge fugal um, uh, explosion of energy wasn't really Beethoven's idea at all. It's interesting. I'm sure people would argue that it was, but it's very true. The dates seem to suggest otherwise. And also someone like that was another interesting link from the Beethoven style of writing to Schubert, where there always seemed to be a gap, you know, and uh, he's one of the people that started to bridge it. Mm. You know, he yeah. was... Of course, there was always Beethoven there at the back. If you've been a pupil of Beethoven... <laughs> and living in Vienna at the time, yeah, you, know, you wouldn't, you you wouldn't be able to get rid of that. No. And who would want to? But he did go on and use it and start to forge away with his own things. And again, it, it wasn't just piano. He wrote six symphonies. God knows how many quartets, choral music. He didn't even list the six symphonies in his opus numbers. He didn't even bother to number them. They're just in some cupboard in Vienna still, probably. No, they're not actually. They're, you can hear them now, can't you? But, um, you know, he didn't bother. Getting back to Schubert, when you listened, what did you what did you think? I, well, the symphony came on first, and what I did with all these discs, I didn't read any other notes. I just started at the beginning, and just to see what I thought. And I thought this is a piece that was written by Bruckner. That's what I thought, and I. And I'm afraid I stuck with that. I found it pretty hard going. But then the songs came along and I thought they were stunning. I mm. thought there was one with a violin which is absolutely beautiful. Where he is forced to change the shape of the phrase and the length of the phrase because of the words. 
When he hasn't got words, he comes up in blocks of fours, just like Bruckner, four or eight. And you get that if you if he goes da 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 dum, the next three are going to be da 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 dum da 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 da. And that's the language he wrote in. Yes. And the orchestration tends to be block as well. Um, but I thought the songs were really lovely. So it's an example of a composer, a second eleven composer, a dreadful thing to say, but shorthand, um, for whom the largest genre is not necessarily going to be comfortable. But given something smaller, more controllable, a real a for real me, original, originality yeah, comes across. I thought it was really beautiful. Yeah. Um, I may be wrong. I mean, I would like to, the third symphony lasts over an hour, apparently. Well, I don't know whether I'd last it, but I'd like to hear it to see whether he developed, whether he carried on. And Mind you, he was over 30 when he wrote the first symphony, so I imagine that was his sort of musical language was already there. What did you think? Well, no, I have exactly the same reaction. Um, but I'm pleased it's that way round, because I often find that composers who are capable of writing in short forms, concise forms, particularly if there are words involved, and if they can do it well, they very often do have interesting things to say. Mm. The other way around um, is often quite disappointing, mm. um, where, where people are, are, are able to write huge noisy things, um, but can't actually distill the essence of a thought, or the essence of a poem, or the essence of a song. So I was wondering if you wanted to end, I wrote out, um, well, I copied the, uh, one of the poems, one of Goethe's poems in English and German, just in case anyone fancied trying the German version, but... Oh, Ollie, that's down to you. <laughs> I'm afraid I have, I think, minus expertise in German. My sister's tried to teach it to me and I've has failed so well i'm going to take a pass on it as well oh, uh, no german i i can hardly speak english let alone german it's, it's hopeless <laughs> would either of you maybe like to read out the english version uh well what's it say um six 
<laughs> Should have uh, left that bit out, I think. I'll leave the mistake there. <laughs> like and like, a fair bell flower sprang tip from the ground, and early its fragrance it shed all around. A bee came thither and sipped from its spell, but they fell for each other when made we see well. Ideas that weren't perhaps naturally his. There's no way of shame thinking. in that. No, I, I don't think you could argue that any of any of the first group of Schubert symphonies are as good as his songs. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, what, it's the same it's, thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now I suspect that your next question about K Star is going to be something that I'm definitely the wrong age group to answer. K-Star has not entered my world at this point. Mm. Well, it hasn't entered mine. I didn't know anything about it. Me neither. Until first one, and then I'm like, God. Yeah. That voice came out. Wow. I had the same reaction. Yeah. I was blown away by her voice. I thought it was stunning. So that's crossed two generations then. Hasn't it just? <laughs> I mean, both to, down to you and then across to Ollie. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Good for her. Yeah. Absolutely. Fantastic. What I loved about this is the band, though. I just love that idea that you can play music and be that relaxed and yet keep that ensemble like that. Mm. It's just brilliant. I love that. And that's what's nice about things like the the Sinatra things, it's the big band going on in the back. And they're doing the most fantastic things and they're swinging it and they never drop a chord.
course, it's not improvised at all. It's no, no. Very, very, very carefully written and rehearsed. Mm. Um, but still, yes. they still manage to just swing it that bit. That you feel, even if they have practised it, it's a bit like hearing the difference between hearing a very good orchestra play a piece of Kodai or Bartok or Dohnani, all Hungarian composers, and hearing a Hungarian orchestra play the same pieces. There is some understanding that comes, I think, from language which the Hungarian musicians naturally understand. They understand the stress, the rhythm, the quirks of, of the language, which yeah. is wh where the music comes from, and yeah. um, can't be written down on the page. There is no way of notating those very subtle stresses. And I often think that jazz is the same. There is something it's that has something. to be in you. You can't write it down on the page. It's not possible to notate. And all those guys, they, they know how to do it. Mm. There was a piece of music uh, years and years ago. An American composer wrote a piece called it "Was Quiet House." Do you know that? If it isn't Ned Roram, it's somebody like that. And he was asked to write a piece called "As Quiet House," and there are I don't know how many pieces, ten or twelve pieces. And the school children at a local school had to write a short story, and it started "As Quiet House." <laughs> and he wrote a piece to each little story that he liked the look of and it was recorded by the Boston Symphony Orchestra and several of them they have to swing it and most of them are straight just straight and then suddenly one piece comes along <laughs> and the brass boys let go and I, and I thought my God, there aren't many orchestras in the world that could do that. Mm. Within one piece, play straight like Brahms. Mm -hmm. And then the next second, mm -hmm. they're into this stuff. And it was, I just, I always remembered that. I thought it was brilliant. Mm. It's probably something unique to American orchestras. Oh, it, yeah, exactly. I think there's something in the American system that, in their genes there yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So where, where now, now that you've heard K-Star, where does she f sort of fit in your sense of, of popular musical performance? Is this somebody you consider to be you know, at the top of their chosen field? I don't know enough about it to say, really, to be honest. I mean, Com I enjoyed compared, the compared yeah. to the people that we think of as being... Absolutely, the top, the, the Judy Garlands and, yeah. mm. and so on, the, the kind of powerful vocalists. I mean, what impressed me so much about it was, about her, was that she was able to adapt her voice to so many different forms of um, jazz music. She had the big band things earlier in her career, and she started collaborating with people like Ben Webster, proper jazz aficionados. And in each of these settings, she was able to perform with her voice as an instrument in a completely suitable way, which makes it actually quite hard, I think, to fit her into that, um, a particular, you know, group of jazz singers in the period. Because, I mean, the obvious people you might compare to Billie Holiday, perhaps, Julie London, they all 
often had their lane that they were headed in. They were doing it fantastically and they had a very unique vocal style in that particular brand of jazz. But yeah. her, she seemed to just straddle all these different forms of jazz mm. and do it incredibly well. Yeah. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know where I'd place someone like that. There's just something in her voice when she held those long notes and some, something came out at the end of her. Yeah. More than you know More than you know Man of my heart I love you so Lately I find You're on my mind More than you know Thanks so much for joining us. Um, My pleasure. More than I chose.